0: Over the past few years, the conventional wisdom around the value proposition of big data has begun to shift. While the prevailing attitude towards big data may once have been bigger is better, many organizations today recognize that broad-scale data collection comes with its own set of risks. Data privacy is becoming a hotly debated topic in both the technology industry and in regulatory agencies and governments. Bigger private data sets are more attractive targets for hackers meaning that an organization must invest heavily in security as well to avoid a breach. Every organization faces a trade-off between the value of the insights produced from large data sets versus increasing storage costs and privacy risks. Tonic is building a synthetic data platform to address these trade-offs and help organizations mitigate data risk. Tonic takes in raw data, perhaps from a data lake, and transforms it into a more manageable, de-identified data set for ease of use and user privacy. Tonic can create statistically identical, structured data sets that allow software engineers and business analysts to extract the same useful insights that drive an organization's progress without the risk of working with identifiable private user data. Ian Coe, Andrew Colombi, and Adam Kaymore are co founders of Tonic, along with their fourth co founder, Carl Hansen. They have all worked at Palantir Technologies, where the idea for Tonic was born. They joined the show today to talk about the value of synthetic data. The risks and rewards of big data, and how compliance, privacy, and security are driving innovation in the data management sector. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having hey, us. Thank you. Yeah, likewise.
0: Simple question: What is synthetic data?
1: Oh man, that's like it's actually not a simple question. question. It's not a simple, simple question. question, man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll start, and I'll, you know, Ian and Adam chime in too, but like. The short answer is there's no consensus to what that means. I think, you know, colloquially, when people think of the word synthetic data, they're thinking, oh, we're going to create data based on some sort of statistical model of the underlying data. And the reason we're going to do that is we think it'll help protect the privacy of the underlying data. And, you know, there's that reason and maybe another reason would be we can create as much of the data or as little of the data as we want because it's from a statistical model so I'll just sample that model more if I need to so i think those are the things that are going through people's heads when they when they when they're thinking about like what what synthetic data could do for them but you know why do i say it's not a simple question there are just so many ways you can approach that And even ones that seem like straightforwardly, like, oh, this should definitely protect the privacy of my users or whatever, aren't actually as protective as you think they might be. So there isn't like one simple answer there. And what our product does is try to give you like a set of like a toolbox, a little bit of a toolbox to produce data that provides the utility you need, meaning like it can create Uh, Data that's useful for testing, if that's what you want to do with it, or sales demos, if that's what you want to do with it, while also protecting the privacy of your users, which means, you know, you don't reveal any sensitive information about your users. And so it's like, like I said, it's a bit of a toolbox in that way, because there are different ways you can configure it depending on your needs.
2: That's right. I would add on to that, that like what you mean by synthetic data can also like it can depend on what your use case is for that data, right? Where like, you know, the use casing kind of imply or suggest different techniques or algorithms that should be used to generate that data and also kind of, you know, help you determine what the privacy bar is for the data you generate, which again is going to, you know, change what techniques and algorithms you use.
0: So the the main motivation, or the at least easiest to explain motivation that I can see is like I'm a developer working at a company I have access to a database with customer data. I'm going to make a query to that database. I should not be able to see actual customer data, right? I should be able to see samples of the data that looks like it's real. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly that's,
3: you know, the philosophy, you know, very aligned with our philosophy. Obviously, it depends on your specific organization and the types of data that you're working with. Obviously, things like medical data are more sensitive than certain other types of data. But you know, long term, if you're looking at your data governance strategy and you're trying to keep your organization and your users as secure as possible, it's going to help your company and put you in a better place in it from a security posture and just you know general liability per- perspective. If you know your lower environments don't have all kinds of user information scattered throughout them, and that you have, and then conversely that your developers have a data source that's really useful and actually allows them to, you know, have test cases that are valid and everything and so you sort of want both, you know, to protect your users but also have something that doesn't slow engineering down.
0: And is there also a motivation to getting synthetic data to increase the volume of data that you have available to machine learning models?
1: Well, You know, that certainly uh, could be a motivation. Another version of that, you know, increasing the volume is for scale testing. Actually, you know, our main focus is not in getting synthetic data into the hands of ML practitioners, but rather getting them into the hands of uh, developers, QA people, designers, product managers, people that are more like in the software development side of things rather than the model development side of things. We know that there's a lot of use cases out there for synthetic data for ml and i think that's like a hot topic right now it's not where we've decided to focus yeah and if you look at our website and you look at like our customer lists you'll see like oh that yeah that kind of makes sense
0: so walk me through the process of actually creating some synthetic
1: data sure so the way our approach you know kind of divides the problem is what users are doing in our platform is annotating data that they in their database looking at the different tables and the different columns and annotating those things so that the system can understand how like what the appropriate model is for that kind of data so like a very simple example to give you let's say you have a table of users and they you know they've got like geographic information in there We can annotate the the columns that, hey, these columns are related to geographic information or these columns are categorical in nature. And then the system will understand, okay, that's what this has been annotated as. And by the way, we have systems in place to automatically annotate some of your data. So, you know, for geographic information, for example, we can automatically detect that. And then the system creates A composite of models so by that I mean we've got many different kinds of models in our system it's not just like one model that rules them all we've got models for geographic information we've got models for categorical for continuous for event kind of data all these different kinds of models and the system puts those models together to create one giant composite model and that aggregation of all the models for all the tables and columns in the system become the like the supermodel or the meta model that is what's used to synthesize data going forward. Yeah, so that, that's kind of like how it works in an overall perspective.
0: What is difficult about building that?
1: From a user's perspective or from our perspective, I'll, I'll start right from our perspective. I mean, when we first started this company about three years ago now, we definitely had a different set of perspectives than we have now. You know, we were naive and and idealistic, and we thought, okay, well, we can just make one model to rule them all. And as we encountered different use cases at different customers and the complexity of the data, one thing that we haven't talked about, I'll just briefly mention, we focus on entire databases. We don't focus on data sets. We focus on databases and many databases. You know, if you go to a, like your typical tech company, like eBay is one of our customers, they have thousands of databases and tens of thousands of tables, as you might imagine. And so, you know, a system that works on a couple CSV files while can be very impressive and useful in certain use cases is not gonna be what you need for software development. So, you know, that was one of our early learnings is that like we need to focus on databases, which also means, you know, focusing on what makes that problem unique? What makes that problem different from the problem of working with a couple CSV files? Well. You know, it's, it's the relationships across the whole databases. It's the relationships between databases. So, you know, those are some of the things that that we focused on early on, I think, helped us get traction with the software development community. It was very helpful there. And then, you know, so that's like the, meta, the, or like the large-scale problem of, of doing a whole database. But there's also the detailed problems of, hey, we've got a text field. It's got sensitive data in it sometimes, maybe somewhere. And you know how do you how do you find the needle in that haystack? And you know so th- there are problems both at the bar- the large scale and at the small scale of of how you need how you create synthetic data.
0: So can you tell me more about the problems that this solves for typical companies? So you've got problems in testing and security and compliance tell me a little bit more in detail how generating synthetic data alleviates problems that they have.
1: Sure. And uh, Ian or Adam, you should definitely chime in if you have more thoughts. So, you know, I mean, some of it's regulatory, right? There is things like CCPA. There are things like GDPR, which have, you know, kind of a detailed description of what kind of problems you can face if you don't adequately secure your data. And then there are other, like, more specific regulations in particular industries like HIPAA for healthcare data, and there's equivalent ones for education data. Uh, it turns out that we have a lot of customers in ed tech and in, and in health tech and in fintech, because fintech is another example of a specifically regulated industry. So that's like, you know, if you're in one of those industries, you know the laws that apply to you and, and you kind of need to find a solution. Then there are more, like, what's the best practice or what's the what's the kind of company culture we want to have, or, or, you know, what's going to do right by our customers. And you find that that, that's the kind of thing that hits, hits companies as they grow. You know, they're starting to scale up. They're beyond 20 engineers now. Maybe, maybe they're at a hundred engineers or something. And there are just sort of, we should do the right thing here. The, the data being exposed to too many people isn't good for, for our customers. And that, that's like another level uh, of thing that can come in as a company grows. I don't know, Ian, you've probably thought a lot about this too. Yeah, I yeah. That. I
3: mean, I, I, Andrew, I agree with everything you said. I think, you know, what's interesting is when you actually talk to a lot of our customers, they say things like, wow, we've been wanting to solve this for years, and we've just been too scared to take it on because it's an inordinate amount of work. And uh, you know they're really glad to see that there's someone out there who's going to solve this in a first-class way, and can actually you know give deliver results in a month, and you know let them you know essentially transition their dev team from a dependency on this you know data with a lot of sensitive information in it into a data set that. Is much, much more secure and poses much, much less of a risk. Because, I mean, the thing is, people secure production in most cases. I mean, it's access controlled, logged, you know, what have you. But then if someone has to copy that data somewhere else, typically wherever they've copied it to doesn't have that. And that gives CISOs a lot of heartburn. And I guess, you know, sort of ref- going a level deeper on what Andrew said around industry is, you know, in the fullness of time, we believe anyone developing software of a certain level of complexity. And at a certain level of scale, needs this type of solution. You know, the way we kind of think of it today is that if you're a healthcare company, you know, we should be talking to you if you're 10 people big. If you're a fintech, maybe 50 people, because you know, there's you know, quite a few regulations on uh, fintechs as well. A Standard B2B company, and this is I think kind of the sweet spot and where many of our customers live is around 200ish people. You know, at that point, you've Maybe hired a CISO. You're considering something like a SOC two audit. Uh, the other thing is that you know you, you now are signing data covenants with customers, saying you know how you're actually going to use their data. Um, you know you might have your CISO going to meetings and you know explaining your data practices and how you're protecting the data. And so that's that's something that gets you know you know that. Is sort of even as you reach that sort of SMB level, that's something that becomes increasingly more complicated to manage and handle appropriately. Um, if you're B two C, you know it, it's often a little bit bigger just because you're you're not having to deal with those kinds of things as early, and may, you know might not be as. But again, all this, uh, you know, as Andrew said, is dependent on your company's culture. But you know, I, I guess those are sort of the frameworks that we think about when we th- you know think about who's who's going to adopt this
0: and you know when. So if I'm running Tonic over my, my uh, data set. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can change in my, my databases, like the schema can change, new kinds of data can be, can be added. How do I know that the Tonic system is going to be consistently updated with the changes to my database?
3: Well, uh, yeah, glibly, glibly, I would say that's one of the things that uh, does make this hard uh, you know to your previous question, but I'll, I'll let Andrew provide more detail. It
1: looks like Adam was ready
2: to. yeah, I, I can I can take this one. So you know, I mean, in a rapidly developing product like a lot of our customers have, it's really common for you know schema changes to happen, you know, new columns to be added, columns to be changed, the the meaning of columns can, you know change over time, et cetera, right? So what Tonic does is basically alert users to when new data has been added that hasn't yet been, you know, acknowledged that this new data is there in the Tonic system. Um, And Tonic can be configured to essentially not allow a new generation of data to occur until someone, like a user of Tonic, has, you know, acknowledged the presence of this new column and has either said, yeah, that's sensitive data, let's deal with it in one of the ways Tonic supports, or oh no, that's not sensitive, we don't need to do anything about it. Um, Because at the end of the day, we really want to make sure our customers don't inadvertently take sensitive data from production and then move it into a lower environment without, you know, at least having the option first to transform that data.
1: And the one quick thing I'd add is this is another example of a learning that we that we had from working with large databases as opposed to just a few CSVs here and there. That's right. Any other frustrations of
0: working with those large databases, integrating with them?
2: I can throw one out that is, it's not necessarily a frustration. It's actually, we've kind of turned it into an opportunity. But we, our job, or rather Tonic's job, can be done slightly easier when there are foreign key constraints already in the database. You know, because foreign keys, they kind of tell you what relates to what, right? Um, But, you know, oftentimes, and for very good reasons, large database systems might not have foreign key constraints, and, you know, initially that was was painful, right? It was like, we weren't able to like make decisions on certain things without these foreign key constraints. Um, but we've actually, in, in newer versions of Tonic, and we've been doing this for, I guess, well over a year now, come to think of it. Um, we actually allow the user to add, you know, what we're calling, I guess, like, you know, virtual or logical foreign key constraints on top of the system that don't actually go into the database layer, but you're telling Tonic where those foreign keys would be. And then we can, you know, treat them as if they were real and still do all of the magic that tonic does uh, and actually we're going further now and actually you know helping users detect where they are for them because oftentimes in large database systems you won't even know where they are um so that's that's one example andrew or ian any others that's a great example
1: no I yeah think that's good the,
3: the only other thing i was thinking of is just performance many of our customers depend on regular refreshes being able to move large amounts of data quickly. So I think that's been a, another learning that was really important is that everything we, needs, we do needs to be very, very efficient. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how we optimize performance. Yeah, that's a good one. I think when the company
2: was was much smaller than it is now, Andrew and I spent many hours together looking at profile traces, uh, figuring out where we could you know eke out the most performance and speed.
0: When you talk to companies like Flexport or eBay, these companies that have gigantic sets of data and lots of problems that they need to tackle with the data, what are the other, other problem sets that they come to you discussing?
1: I think the big one that I can think of right away is subsetting. So when you look at eBay's data, and you know, like I said, it's spread across many databases, many tables, and it's massive, right? petabytes and petabytes of data. And you want to create something that's useful for development. Likely the answer is not another petabyte and petabyte data set. In fact, you know, if you want to be able to load that database on your laptop so you can do local development and not really, you know, step on anyone else's toes while you're doing it you need a very a much smaller data set. And so this is one of the features that we invested in early and, and are continually improving is our subsetting algorithm, which what it basically does is it kind of understands the web of relationships in your database and across databases, I would add, through foreign keys and through the logical foreign keys, as Adam was explaining earlier, so that when you extract a single entity, like let's say in eBay's case, it's like an item that's for sale, you don't extract just that entity but you extract all the metadata associated with that entity so that would be the users that are involved with that entity any like bids on that entity and uh, the myriad of other data that is associated with an item or any entity in a large database system so we we you know we invested in that early it's something that's used heavily at at eBay as well and also at uh, our other customers. And then, you know, Flexport's an example where they specifically did want a a database that's suitable for development purposes on their local laptops. And, you know, that's another example of where like being able to pare the data down is, is very helpful.
0: So you have this this problem of data... De-identification. So, when you are trying to create synthetic data for users, you want to create data that is anonymized. If I if I'm understanding it correctly, and uh, I remember reading a paper about this a-, a while ago that the anonymization problem, and that it's really really hard to make data uh, to make data sets where you you shadow certain fields and try to anonymize the data, like removing the address from all of the uh, all of the users in the database. Have you guys actually made breakthroughs in, in de-identification, or are there some new techniques that
1: are available? Yeah, I mean, de-identification, it's maybe a pejorative. It's tough. You know, going back to your earlier questions about, like, what is synthetic data – what is de-identified data? What is masked data? What is obfuscated data? All these things have like squishy definitions and and they can be dangerous because you can say like, well, I de-identified the data and exactly what that means is gonna really matter because it may or may not have accomplished the, the de-identification that you were hoping for. You know, there's this famous example of Netflix, the Netflix challenge where Netflix released a bunch of data having quote unquote de-identified it and then sure enough, internet sleuths were able to re-identify certain users based on their those users' activity that was masked in the Netflix data set, but not masked in the real world. And so, you know, you can go on imdb.com and maybe correlate activity of a user in Netflix with a user in imdb.com and then reverse who that person was. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. And... There are techniques though. There are known mathematical frameworks for thinking about how to properly really de-identify data. The main one that comes to mind is called uh, differential privacy. It's been around, it's you know discovered or invented, depending on your preference, in I think 2006 out of uh, Microsoft Research. And it's been a real mainstay of data privacy research going forward. And then there are other techniques as well, you know, and there's other approaches, you know, that it's not, it's not just differential privacy, but that there are a handful of approaches and we incorporate those in the product. So, the, you know, our product is very configurable, like I was saying before, there's a toolbox kind of approach, and there are ways you can configure it to, to maximize the privacy which, you know, can have a deleterious effect on the utility. And then there are approaches that can, you know, more maximize the utility. And the approach you take is going to depend on what you think your adversary is, right? Is your adversary other people in your company or is your adversary the world? And then, of course, even if if you're you're not, not going like to publish the data to the world. It may get inadvertently published to the world because although you trust your employees, the employee loses the laptop or whatever. So it depends on what your threat model is and, and what the data is exactly that you're trying to protect. But there are ways of being very mathematically rigorous about what it means for the data to be private. And we incorporate those in our technology as well.
0: As you've mentioned, this is a product that is going to get used by data scientists, by QA people, by customer service people, by a wide variety of people. How do you keep the interface widely accessible?
2: I would say that I think all of those groups of people could certainly use the Tonic interface, right? I think we, we accomplish that by just having same defaults, a clear UI, helpful documentation, etc., but really, it, it's mostly larger groups of people use the data that Tonic generates. It's not necessarily the same group of people using the Tonic interface to like generate the configuration that, that later on generates the data. Got it. So I, I just wanted to call out that distinction. But I, I, I do believe that a, a wide variety of you know people uh, and backgrounds do use Tonic successfully. And Andrew, you were gonna say something as well.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that covers a lot of it. You know, our the product you can go on our website, you can see like little vignettes and snippets of it. It is a UI focused thing. You know, it's not like a API product, and we believe that's a valuable you know a valuable thing for us because it helps users visualize what they're doing very easily. And you know, I, I I've been a coder for twenty more than twenty years, and I love me some code. But if I have the choice between coding and just like clicking on something, often I will pick the click because it's quicker and, and uh, often gives you like easier feedback and stuff like that. So, you know, we have a UI we and, and it's kind of whizzy to borrow a term that's not used very much anymore. Yeah. Right. And really, I mean, it, it just to,
2: to emphasize it once more, you can use Tonic without writing a single line of code.
3: Yeah, I mean, all our backgrounds, I mean, we come from sort of, um, the, you know, data analytics and, you know, data's, you know, BI space. So we've actually, that's sort of ingrained in us, you know, to make interfaces that are, in, you know, intelligible to users and, you know, help you visualize and understand your data in a, in a clean and clear way.
0: Take me inside the product development. What has been the, the strategy for organizing, organizing your engineering team? And, um, what are you focused on right now?
1: Sure. Well, just to give a little more background like our company is currently 20 people and hiring. And so, if you're interested in any of the problems that we've been talking about so far, you should definitely drop us a line. But yeah, I mean our team isn't isn't super big yet. And so, it's been a very flat structure. We hope to continue the, you know, flat structure. But everyone does everything, you know? We don't hire front end only or back end only like you get a feature <coughs> that feature is yours from the the SQL that you need to generate to do it to the React TypeScript uh, component that needs to be created to take advantage of it. We find that to be a, a, like an empowering way for people to work and giving people also giving people like the whole problem is more efficient in many ways because you're not like trying to communicate between different teams or different people trying to like you know agree on an interface or whatever. So that, that you know, I think that's like the way we we've organized the engineering team so far. And then on the on the question of like, what are the the big challenges or the things that we're working on, I, I like to divide it into three main categories of of problems that our engineers are working on. The first one is data pipeline stuff. So it's like you know, we do a lot of grab data from a database, do some analysis of it, or you know, or even take it wholesale and then writing data to an output database. And actually, I want to, there's a brief aside, like I said, take it wholesale. Another learning from, you know, having, doing this on databases is there are many tables in a database that you don't need to make private. They're like, you know, the schema version because it automatically gets updated or other, other, there are other things in a database that you don't need to actually synthesize or, or make private. So anyway, data pipeline is is the first first category. Second category is ergonomics. So that's just like making Tonic easy to use. And it's not just easy to use, but like fit with a corporate workflow. I mean, when you've got a company like eBay that has thousands of engineers that are gonna be working on data that you create, there are a lot of stakeholders in the synthetic data that you're creating and so there's a lot of people that want to have visibility into it there's like compliance that wants to be able to approve things so there's a whole workflow and uh, and that's where I put in like the ergonomics bucket of like it's not just ergonomics for the person but it's ergonomics for the organization you know the whole organization needs to to feel comfortable using this tool and then the third category of things that we work on is the the more mathy stats and the privacy utility we want to create the most private data with the best utility that we can and doing that is you know research grade problems and there's you know we're definitely borrowing from academia as much as we can and building some of our own stuff as well but yeah if you're interested in you know doing math and stats that's definitely another area that we that we focus on
2: on the project side the first thing that Andrew spoke to I'd like to add one more thing you know, it, it's definitely true that our engineers, or rather a engineer, will take a single feature and kind of drive it from start to end. And part of that process is also, you know, communicating directly with our customers. Um, we have a, you know, a, a tight communication channel with almost all of our customers, you know, typically sometimes over email, but oftentimes on Slack or Microsoft Teams or, you know, the the chat app du jour. And our engineers will will work with our customers on a, on a very regular basis, you know, helping them sometimes with configuration changes, but oftentimes, you know, collecting, you know, specs and requirements on new features so that that they're going to drive forward in the future. So in a way, at least for now, our engineers are also acting like their own product managers. But that, you know, that that obviously, you know, changes somewhat as the company grows in size.
0: You know, I'm curious about taking some of this, this research, like we discussed with the data de-identification and productizing it and and verifying it verifying that you've productized it correctly because these algorithms can be really complicated to actually implement can you tell me a little bit about the engineering behind an algorithm like that like what programming languages you use how you test it how you verify that it works as intended i'll give
2: an example of uh, an algorithm we use and i can i can talk about how we you know verify that it's correct so one type of like algorithm that we make fairly heavy use of is something called format preserving encryption, which is a way of, you know, doing a a two-way, meaning you you can undo it, you know, encrypting a piece of data, but, you know, encrypting it in a special way such that the ciphertext, that is the output of the encryption algorithm, um, resembles in some way the plain text, you know, the original values, right? Um, So, for example, if you have a column of 32-bit integers, when you encrypt them, you would like them to remain thirty-two bit integers, or if you have a column of, you know, ASCII values. So you know, just there's ask, ASCII. I, I, text. Think,
1: I think a nice example is like credit cards. If you have a, if you have nice. like a column of credit card numbers, you want the output to also be credit card numbers. Right.
2: You know. So meaning, you know, if there's like a check digit in that credit card number, which there happens to be, you would like to ensure that that check digit, you know, is satisfied even with with your encrypted ciphertext. Right. So, and that technique is typically called format-preserving encryption. And, you know, we have to implement our own algorithms there. You asked what the coding languages are for, for this part of our backend. As for most of our backend, it's it's written in um, C-sharp using .NET Core, um, or rather now it's just called .NET, but it's, it's, you know, cross-platform C-sharp. And to verify the validity of these algorithms, it's actually fairly simple for encryption algorithms. Simply decrypt and ensure that um, what you've encrypted when decrypted, it goes back to the original plain text. And so, you know, that is that that is one way of verifying, as well as doing other checks, for example. I um, mean, you know, over 32-bit integers, you can actually kind of test this over the entire space if you need to, uh, ensuring that you have one-to-oneness as well as another, you know, good check to do.
1: Yeah, and like for some of the other algorithms, like when we implement differential privacy, for example, it is challenging to verify the correctness there, but we have like a data science team that that's kind of what they do is like, you know, take a look at these algorithms and and try to look for various attacks on it. Like there's like the implementation and then there's the theory, right? So like the theory, it's all great, of course, but then you implement it and you may have implemented it with a bug. And so like the theory doesn't actually hold up. Right. And so verifying that the actual implementation upholds the qualities that the theory says it should, such as, you know, being resilient to reverse engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Those are things that that team looks at. And it's a lot of, you know, we have the algorithm, let's do some Jupyter Notebooks and uh, let's, you know, try to crack it. That's right. You know, some of the go-to testing
2: mechanisms for developers are, are unit tests. And, you know, this is a conversation Andrew and I were having, you know, recently. A, a lot of our results are, you know, probabilistic in nature, right? You know, you run it twice, you're going to get different results. But, you know, you, you know, if you run it enough times, you know what the distribution of results should look like, right? Like we, we we know what that is, but for any given value, we don't know what it's going to be. So, you know, creating unit tests that can test statistical and probabilistic features uh, is something that we've put, you know, some amount of thought into. And I think we're, you know, happy with our, with our framework there.
0: And so as far as, as far as testing it, can you give me a little bit more detail into how you test the overall system and make sure that it's not de-anonymizing at at any level?
3: So, I mean, I think one one thing to th- understand about our product is that you know we we take data from production and then or or, or whatever secure source, and then we make a, a net new data set out of it. Um, so there aren't you know sort of like artifacts and things that you know it's it's not in, in the sense of like there aren't sort of like things that you know you will be able to you know poke at in in the process you know sort of during you know if, if you're thinking of it as sort of a pipeline so there's sort of i think what andrew and adam were kind of alluding to is that there's sort of an entry and an exit and that that's the main focus and really the important part to test so If for some reason you're, you're, you know, we we offer basically on-prem and then also a cloud-hosted version of our product, and then so I think for folks who are using the cloud, those kind of questions become a little more important, Um, and we do have assurances that, you know, we give those customers and we never retain data, things like that. But for folks that are especially concerned about sort of the intermediate steps you know that that's a really good reason to use the on prem and then you're sort of in control of the data throughout the entire processing and it all stays within
0: your VPC gotcha so as far as the the compliance use case if i'm getting my my company audited how does having anonymized data help me past that audit. I guess I, I'm not super familiar with with data privacy law, so I'd love to know a little bit more about how this kind of system is useful.
3: Yeah, yeah. So there's actually uh, a tenant within SOC 2 that says, thou shall not use production data for testing and development. So that is a specific thing that you actually have to check a box on uh, if you're going through a SOC 2 audit. And so that that's you know that's one that's really really specific. GDPR and CCPA uh, both have slightly more vague uh, sort of language around this. But basically, the the main thing that you that uh, folks we, we advise folks to think about is that if you breach under CCPA or GDPR, you're subject to very large fines. Except if you uh, have de-identified the data, and you know as we were discussing. Uh, Before they do not define what de-identification is, but they they use language similar to the act of something like substantially resistant to reverse engineering. Um, So that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you gave an intelligence service a decade to reverse it, that, you know, you, you had to withstand like that kind of adversary, but, you know, substantially. So, and you know, a lot of this is up to prosecutorial discretion. So, you know, if you look at you know sort of the big privacy laws and uh, security frameworks out there, uh, there are they they talk about this and you know you are in a much better place in the event you have and have an adverse event if you've taken steps, uh, you're you're less likely to get fines, uh, you're less likely to have
0: uh, issues with your customers. Gotcha, that makes a lot of sense. So what's in the future? you guys what are the the next products that you think you'll be building or features that you'll add on to tonic
1: yeah i think going back to those three those three main categories of development work you know the pipeline work the ergonomics work and the stats utility privacy work those those are the areas that we're working on every day just to like go maybe a level deeper there um we're, we mostly work against like the, basically the most popular relational databases, right? Like Postgres, MySQL, SQL Server, Oracle, that kind of thing. Expanding beyond that, I think, is really interesting. Uh, we already have a product actually for Spark. So if you have massive amounts of analytics data that you want to quickly and scalably you know, do some do some sort of data protection on. That's something that we can already help you with. But expanding beyond that, I think is is a is an interesting spot. Also, increasing the ergonomics, right? Like I was saying before, with enterprise uh, customers, they have demands around how customers how their different teams can work together. And I think making that giving people a workflow, giving people a way to almost like codifying what is what does good look like for a company working on protecting their data? Not just from the like algorithmic perspective of, oh, we're going to use these algorithms to protect the data, but just from a process perspective. Who should be involved in making the decisions? What kind of visibility, what kind of reports, what kind of audits should be available so that you know if there is an incident, you can track down exactly what happened. Th- those kinds of features, I think, are, are going to be really important in the future. And, and especially as like larger companies take this very, very seriously and smaller companies too. And then the last thing, you know, the statistics and stuff, like I said before, we're always trying to increase utility and privacy. Uh, It's a very difficult challenge. They directly try to defeat one another. You know, the more utility you squeeze out of the data, the, the more privacy you're, you're likely sacrificing, but that doesn't mean that there are ways of, you know, different approaches that can, can improve the score on both privacy and utility. Uh, And so finding those, finding those compromises, you know, it's like, it's like, it's a compromise. It's not like a silver bullet always, but finding the right compromises um, that, that, you know, fit our customers needs is is what we're looking for. All
0: right. And, zooming out, given that you work with a variety of companies and you see some of the data problems that they have up close, do you have any more general industry perspective about changes to the data landscape that we'll see in the coming years?
3: I think one thing that we're seeing a lot of is microservices. So I expect that we'll continue to see more and more of that And, uh, obviously, you know, that's something that, you know, if you're going to solve this problem, you need to solve it, uh, in a way that, you know, supports those type of setups. I think another interesting challenge
2: that companies have been coming to us a lot with lately is satisfying all of the new laws and regulations that are coming out, or maybe some of them aren't so new at this point, but you know, they're relatively new. And I think we're going to see more and more on that front and hence, you know, additional features and capabilities in Tonic just to always allow our customers to meet the uh, compliance issues that come up.
0: Cool. Well, any other topics you guys want to explore or do you think that's, uh, you think we've covered everything in the, in the scope of, of Tonic and your perspectives on, on data infrastructure?
3: Just want to reiterate uh, that, as as Andrew said, there are some really interesting problems to work on here at Tonic. And uh, if you're, you know, if they sound interesting to you, we'd love to chat.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for coming on the show and talking about Tonic and synthetic data and what you're building. Thanks
3: so much.
1: Thanks for having us.